we're going to jump back in to what we've called the story of Scripture. And what we're trying to do, just to remind you from two weeks ago, is we're really just trying to take kind of an orbital, um, an orbital view of the Bible and walk through it chronologically. And, and I emphasize chronologically because, uh, and, and we'll, um, obviously we'll give an overview over each book, but part of the challenge, especially with the Old Testament, that I find for a lot of, for a lot of us is the Old Testament is not written like a book you would pick up and read it. Like last night I finished a history book uh, over the um, uh, essentially the Gilded Age of American history and the rise of uh, the big market tycoons, Rockefeller and Carnegie and all this. It's a book I've been reading for a while, finished it last night. When you read that book, it's essentially when you start at chapter one, you're at the beginning of what the author's covering. When you get to the end of the book, you're at the end of that period. It's, it's set up chronologically. That's how you and I are accustomed. When you walk through the Old Testament, parts are chronological, but other parts are not chronological. And not only that, but even inside of certain books, the chapters are not in chronological order. They're sometimes arranged otherwise. And so I can really trip, uh, trip us up and try to go through. And even for me, who's taught through this many times, who's been through seminary, all of this, I still save cheat sheets on just, okay, now, that prophet dropped in which king's reign, okay, it just, because there's a lot, and it's not uh, for us as 21st century American believers, this is not, even though it is our history, it's not our history in the same way it would have been if you and I were Jews in the first century when Jesus shows up on the scene. And so uh, that's, that's what we're doing. So we're, there's certain things in, in any of these books. There's stuff that I'll get sidetracked by and then go, oh, we got to keep going. And there's stuff we're going to have to just fly over. And you might go, oh, but my favorite story. And I apologize if I skip your favorite story. But just know what we're trying to do, trying to walk through that. So uh, last week, we, or last, two weeks ago, we walked through uh, basically just Genesis. And when you come to Genesis, we remember there's, there's two halves of the book. There's chapters 1 through 11 and then 12 through 50. And, and 1 through 11 basically set the stage. They're foundational. We discover who God is. Uh, he is a unique, distinct being from all of creation who creates. Uh, we see creation seen uh, or unseen and especially seen. We see that uh, all that is in creation was created by the, the word of God and, and is good fundamentally in its basic essence. We see God creates men and women in his image. Uh, we see the basis for family. We see uh, the fall, what went wrong. So how do we get here? Origins, how it went wrong, the fall, Genesis chapter 3. And then we see chapter 4 through 11, the incredible destruction that sin wreaks havoc on our world and on people. And you get through chapter 11, you get past Noah's flood, you get to chapter 11, and you come to chapter 12, everything changes. And all of a sudden, this promise back here in Genesis 3.15 that God makes when he curses the serpent, that he would raise up the seed of the woman. And though the serpent would bruise the seed's hill, the seed would crush the serpent's head. And this promise, this first promise of a Savior, of a Messiah, of one who would set things right, of one who would destroy the enemy and who would bring reconciliation and, and restoration. And we come to chapter 12 and we see God picks this, this man, Abram, out of Ur, of the Chaldees, and he makes a covenant with him. He says, I'm going to take you, Abram, you're 75, you're childless, you have no heir, but I'm going to bring an heir from you. And and from this heir, I'm going to make a great nation. I'm going to give them a, a land. They're going to be a blessing to the, the whole world. And of course, obviously, that blessing to the whole world is going to be the Messiah that will come from this chosen people. Uh, we see this chosen son, Abraham. Abram tries to go one way. 
God says, nope, we're not going to do it through your legitimate son. It's going to come from the son of promise, from the miraculous son. So at 100, Abram and Sarah, there comes Isaac. And then we see Isaac marry Rebekah, and they have the twins, Jacob and Esau. And we see Jacob and Esau. God picks Jacob, and we see the 12 sons of Jacob. Then we follow through what happens with, jo- with Joseph as he goes down to Egypt. Uh, and there in Egypt, goes through all sorts of uh, turmoil and trouble for years. And then God raises him up to the second most powerful man in the world. We see a moment of forgiveness with he and his uh, brothers as Judah steps up to be a substitution for the one who's picked. Uh, and in certain foreshadowing, we see the, the, the 79 persons or so of uh, the family of Jacob come down to Egypt. And that's where we left the story. So we see, we see the basis for all of creation. We see God's work. We see God's work in crafting a people. We see this people is about four generations down the line when we finish the book of Genesis and we come to the book of Exodus. And we come to the book of Exodus. Um, that'd be my father calling. I'll call him back later. Um, just had to make sure it wasn't anything going crazy at the house since Jesse didn't take a nap this afternoon. It was quite the afternoon. Uh, Exodus chapter 1. Here we go. Uh, so these are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob. They came, each one with his household, Reuben, Simeon, Levi and Judah, Issachar, Zebulun and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the persons who came from the loins of Jacob were 70 in number, but Joseph was already in Egypt. Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. So here's what it says is that there was all the sons of (coughs) Jacob came down to Egypt, every every one of them and their families. There's about 70 people in total that came down and and ultimately they all died, but their, their descendants blossomed. So living in the land of Israel, they're 70 in number, surrounded by other peoples, unable to conquer the land, unable to hold the land, unable to work the land. They come down to Egypt, where initially when they come to Egypt, they are under incredible protection because their brother is the second most powerful man in the land, and they began to flourish and become a mighty people. And we know from Genesis chapter 15, if you remember, we looked at it last time. Genesis 15, God, in talking to Abram, tells Abram, uh, that's 13, that would be why that doesn't make any sense. Uh, Chapter 15, he tells Abram, know that your descendants will be strangers in a land that's not theirs, where they will be enslaved and oppressed for 400 years. So, when you get to chapter 1, verse 8 here in Exodus, now a new king arose over Egypt and did not, who did not know Joseph. No, there's, there's a long period of time that's elapsed ultimately between the time of Joseph being there in Egypt to the time that we're going to really pick up with Moses here in just a second. 400 years, <clears throat> this new king, he looked at his people. Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, let us deal wisely. And this is where you begin to see the enslavement of the people of Israel. And then you begin to see the Pharaoh, we're going to put to death all the firstborn sons. And so he uh, gets the, the midwives. And when you're, when you're giving, helping give birth, if it's a son, put him to death. If it's a daughter, uh, they shall live. And it's an interesting statement, chapter 1, verse 17. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt had commanded them, but let the boys live. 
So the king of Egypt called for the midwives and said to them, why have you done this thing and let the boys live? And the midwives said to Pharaoh, because the Hebrew women are not as the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife can get to them. So here's, here's what's gone on. Pharaoh's given a direct government command to the midwives to put to death every male son. The midwives are helping the Hebrew women have babies. They're not putting them to death. So they are, they are directly disobeying a government command. Two, when they're brought before the king, they make up a total lie about it. Man, they're not like the Egyptian women. The Egyptian women are kind of soft in labor. They need help. The Hebrew women, boom, they're just popping babies out. That's what they say. We can't get there fast enough. So they lie about it. Now look at verse 20. So God was good to the midwives, and the people multiplied and became very mighty. This is actually, if you really study biblical ethics, this is actually a really important passage about what do you do in situations where the government asks you to do something that violates God's standards? Do you, do you lie or not? This is the classic, if the government says, we're going to kill Jews and you've got Jews hiding in your basement, do you lie or not? This is one of the texts, the passages that would say in that case, certainly God doesn't like lying, but God would rather lie to save an innocent life than not anyways. Won't digress there any further, but just point that out to you because it's easily looked over. Uh, that here's a situation um, where God honors the the uh, fear of the Hebrew midwives, and so all of a sudden we see in chapter two we see uh, we see uh, uh, from the house of Levi, he and his wife they conceive, bear a son. She hides him for three months. When she can no longer hide him, she makes a wicker basket. Literally, that wicker basket term is she makes for him an ark. Same term as Noah's ark and uh, sets it in the Nile. We see that not only did they set it in the Nile, but as it goes down and Pharaoh's daughter finds it bathing in the stream, uh, the, the boy's sister has followed along the whole time. And in an act of incredible shrewdness, the sister comes out and says, hey, Pharaoh's daughter, I know a Hebrew lady who could be a great midwife for you. And of course, then Moses' mom would be the one to continue to nurse and take care, and we see God. Uh, we see God spares and, and guards and protects this unique individual, Moses. And so Moses enters the picture, and we, we don't know a lot in here. Um, it says in verse chapter two, verse eleven, when it came up in those days, Moses had grown up. He went out to his brethren, looked out on their hard labor, saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brethren. He looked this way and that. When Noah's one was around, he struck the Egyptian and hit him in the sand. And so we see this instant come where Moses is seeing the affliction of his biological people at the hands of his adopted people. And in this affliction, he takes it upon himself to take out this Egyptian guard. And if you know the story, in the next couple verses, what we find out is it doesn't go as planned. And Moses is not rallied, the Jewish people do not rally to him, and he flees in fear of his life. Now, here's what's interesting. If you know the rest of the story, he's going to go out to Midian, which is a <clears throat> nomadic people uh, in uh, what would be today the Sinai Peninsula of Egypt. And there he's going to meet his uh, future in-laws. Um, <clears throat> he'll marry his wife. He will help tend his father Jethro's uh, sheep. And that sets the stage for Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis, Exodus chapter 3, which is the burning bush where Moses is, t is tending his sheep up on the mountain and he looks over and he sees a bush that's burning. It's, con it's consumed with fire, but it's not burning up. And so he steps forward to it. The bush calls out to him, tells him to take off his shoes. He's on a holy ground. And of course, 
Not only is this where Moses will be called, but this is one of the major moments in all of Scripture because this is the moment where Moses says, okay, God, when, when I go and tell your people that you've sent me to deliver you, who am I going to say is, is telling? Who, who is sending me? And of course, this is where God says, you will tell them I am who I am sends you. And this is where the personal holy name of God is, is, is first communicated by God to man. It's not the first time it's used in Scripture, but it's the first time it's communicated from God to man. This is a, this is a step beyond in the revelation of God to man. And of course, if you know the story of Moses, God says, I'm going to send you, Moses, down, uh, <clears throat> down into... Uh, down into Egypt, and this is, it's interesting, he says, the sign that, that I'm going to have sent you, the sign, the way you'll know I sent you, is when you bring all the people out, you're going to worship at this mountain. And just pause for a second and realize how crazy that is. Hey, Moses, <clears throat> I'm going to send you into the most powerful kingdom in the world. You're going to openly defy the most powerful man in the world, and the way that you know I'm with you is once you're out of it. And I just say that to say put a little bit more reality to things you and I face and a little more sympathy to certain characters of Scripture to realize, okay, so that means when Moses goes into Egypt, he, his surety that he is, knows God's with him is once they get out of Egypt. So understand even more so the kind of faith that is being asked to be exercised and, and what's there. Um, of course, in, in, the, in the deal, Moses comes up with, well, God, I, I just, I, I'm not... I, I'm, not, I'm slow with speech. I can't talk. I can't stand up. I can't do this. And of course, God ultimately, uh, God, God deals with him graciously for a little bit. And then after Moses finally says, no, 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 God gets a little feisty with him. He says, all right, well, I'll bring up Aaron. Now, here's, here's what's interesting, though, about Moses. Outside of Exodus, there's two other major places where we know things about Moses. Anybody know? Trivia offhand, what two I'm talking about? There's transfiguration. We see Moses up on there. There's two specific about, I give other biographical details about Moses that we often forget. One is Hebrews 11. Hebrews 11. In Hebrews 11, <clears throat> in recounting, in recounting uh, many of the great people of faith of the Old Testament, makes this statement, uh, Hebrews 11, 23. By faith... Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith, he left Egypt not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen by faith. And it goes on to talk about other things. So here's what Hebrews 11 tells us. That Moses was obviously from very young age aware of the fact he was a Hebrew. And even though he grew up in the house of Pharaoh, even though he grew up with access, as we'll see in a second, to great education, he chose to reject an easy, simple life and instead identify with his people and receive ill treatment like his people because of faith because of who he knew God to be and what he sensed God. Here's the other part, though, that we often forget. Because all of us will talk about Moses, and we go, yeah, Moses, he just, man, he just so weak and, and couldn't talk and 
Well, here's what's interesting. It's actually not true that he was a bad speaker. It was just what he believed. Acts chapter 7. This is when Stephen is on trial with the Sanhedrin. And in his trial, he proceeds to preach. Uh, all of Acts 7 is essentially a sermon where he defends the true gospel and calls out the people, the Jewish people, for their refusal to ever trust and obey the one true God. And this is what he says in chapter 7, verse uh, 20. It was at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight of God, and he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he had been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him away and nurtured him as her own. Moses was educated in all the learning of the Egyptians. He had the best education literally the world could offer at the time from an academic standpoint. Most powerful nation, most advanced nation in the world, he, he was educated. Listen to this. And he was a man of power in words and deeds. The description of Moses by, uh, by Stephen is not one of a feeble, soft tongue, but a man who was very intelligent, who was very well-spoken, who was a man mighty in speech and deeds. But when he was approaching the age of 40, so if you've ever seen Prince of Egypt, trash the whole picture that movie gives you in your mind. Moses wasn't a teenager when he fled, he was 40. When approaching the age of 40, it entered into his mind to visit his brethren, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed that his brethren understood that God was granting them deliverance through him, but they did not understand. Did you catch what that just said? That around 40 years old, Moses decided to go out to where his people were enslaved. He, he, when he took the life of that Egyptian, he supposed that the Jewish people would understand that he was going to be the means, God's means of delivering them, and they would rise up with him, a man mighty in speech and deeds, but they didn't. Well, that's a little bit of a different picture of Moses than if we, if we didn't have that background which means that Moses not only had this education, Moses by faith not only identified with his people, Moses had some kind of understanding that God intended to use him to be a deliverer for his people. But at 40 years old, he fled. And that moment in chapter three on the mountain with the burning bush doesn't happen for another 40 years. I kid with my granddad all the time, I say, hey, I know you're about to be 87, but just remember Moses was 80 when God called him to his life's work, so don't get too comfortable. And I'd echo that for anyone in this room approaching the age of 80 or after. Like, don't get comfortable because Moses was 80. <clears throat> so he wasn't, he wasn't the strapping 30-year-old uh, with a nice beard that the Prince of Egypt uh, animates him as. So he goes back 40 years. So what, what's going on? And I think this is an important thing to understand about Moses. Um, and this is maybe a little bit conjecture, but essentially, obviously there was some work of humility that God needed to pull out in Moses' life before Moses was ready. It's not that Moses had the calling wrong. He wasn't in the right spot to live out the calling. And for 40 years, God takes Moses to his own personal wilderness to humble him, 
to break him, to teach him to rely. And obviously in that 40 years, Moses goes a little too overboard because he doesn't recognize, hey, God, you're gonna, you, you can overcome what I think about my words or not. But ultimately we see God's compassion there and his grace to ultimately use Moses and sends Moses back in. And of course, Moses goes back in in chapter five. And initially, I initially remember what I told you, the sign will be that you worship me at this mountain. So the first thing that happens in chapter five, Moses goes in, Pharaoh, Pharaoh, let my people go. How about no, Moses, and we're going to make it even worse on your people, and now they'll complain even more against you. Gets bad right off the start. And then we see that as, as things go through, we see the plagues come in. And by the way, in the plagues, let me make sure I've got this here. In the plagues, the plagues are not random. You go, how, how, why, why, you know, river to blood, darkening of the sky, they're not random. In fact, every plague specifically showed God's power over an Egyptian deity. Every one of those plagues is tied to an Egyptian deity. So water to blood is Osiris and Hopi and Num, frogs, Het, mosquitoes, Seb, flies, Kephra, and a name I can't pronounce, cattle, Typhon, and, and Imohep, boils, Hathor, and Ap uh, Apis, Hail, Serpsis, and Isis, Locust, Seth, Darkness, Ra, the sun god, death of the firstborn, Ptas, the son of life. <clears throat> Every one of the plagues is God demonstrating that he is the one who is in fact God, not the deity the Egyptians worship as God. And when you study through those plagues, <clears throat> just, some, just some things to note in there. One, I believe it's the first six plagues says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. It's not until the seventh plague that God hardens Pharaoh's heart. Because I know that's the classic question of how much human free will versus God's divine predestination do we have? God hardened the heart of Pharaoh. You're right, but not until Pharaoh established a very clear pattern by his own choice of refusing to heed the word of God. And then after God hardens his heart a time or two, Pharaoh hardens his heart having another opportunity to respond and doesn't. And then at this point, God's going to finish the thing out. Now here's, so on one hand, you see this interesting interaction between God's providence and human free will on a personal level. On another level, you understand this, that God's work in the plagues was not merely to break the Egyptian will, but was to evangelize to the Egyptian people. Hey, Egyptians. I'm the one true God. You notice, it's interesting, the Egyptians don't, you know, you would think, wow, the Hebrews who are enslaved to us, their God is doing things our gods are supposed to be able to do, but can't. There's something we see even there, God's heart for the entire world and God's heart for the nations, even through the plagues. Of course, uh, Pharaoh relents after the 10th and final plague of the death of the firstborn. We see the, the people of Egypt, the people of Israel begin to go out. And just for <clears throat> note purposes, if you really want to get into it, there's two questions about the Exodus once the people begin to leave. When did it happen? And which route did they take? Well, when did it happen? There's, is it, there's an early date and a late date. The early date would be for, around 1446 B.C., this is probably going to be where most of us fall based on the evidence. 1 Kings 6 says the Exodus happened 480 years prior to Solomon's fourth year, which we know to be 966. <clears throat> There's 
Jephthah claimed Israel had occupied Canaan for 300 years at the time he makes the claim. The Maranatha still, in, uh, around 1220 B.C., refers to Israel as an already established people in the land. Um, the, the Amana tablets refer to a time of chaos in Canaan, uh, which, could, which would equate with the uh, Israelite conquest, which is around 1400 B.C. Um, there are arguments for a later date, and those comes there, but the more and more we discover, it seems to push towards an early date. And then which route, what I say by route is this, if you're, if you're a maps person, if you ever got bored during the sermon, or maybe still do occasionally, I won't call you out, um, and you got your maps in the back of your Bible, usually you will have a map. Mine, mine picks one, but usually you will have a map, the route of the Exodus, and often, and then this, in this one of my Bibles, it picks, actually picks a specific route. Often you will see three different routes, and that's just because ultimately there is some debate on where is the exact location of Mount Sinai and which would be the exact route that they took to get there. There's a northern route, there's a central route, there's a southern route. Um, the one, and, and there's, there's arguments for all three, the one that historically has been the one that we usually go with is the southern route. That's what tradition has, has typically looked at for uh, at least dating to the 4th century A.D. But anyways, just some little facts there as they go into the Exodus. Of course, you know, as they go to the Exodus, they see this incredible, and, and just picture this, because this impacts as we, as we uh, walk through here. You're an Israelite. A guy shows up, you know him, Moses, says God's going to bring deliverance. At first, things get really tough. Then you see these incredible plagues, the last of which is you cover your doorpost with blood and you partake of the Passover lamb. The angel of death passes over your house, spares your firstborn. And then all of a sudden, the most powerful nation in the world who refused to let you go not only says you can go, but it also says that they pay them. They give them gold and silver, jewels, weapons, food, clothes. They not only let them go, but they heap treasure upon them to leave. And they do so without a shot fired. So then you're, you're starting to go on this route God's taking you. And then Egypt has a change of mind. And when in chapter 14, when you and I as Israelites see the army of Pharaoh, we freak out. Moses, what are you doing? You brought us out here to die. God, you brought us out here to die. Da, 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 da. It just, it, there's no strength of conviction whatsoever. And then Moses prays and God says, you have only literally to shut up and I will fight for you. Shut your mouth. I will fight for you, Moses. Take your rod, stick it in the, in, in the, in the, the Red Sea. It says the Red Sea parts in half, and the language there for how it parts is language that indicates the water were like, uh, like city walls. Think, um, don't think wall like that little partition. Think wall like the top of the roof in that corner. This large walls on either side, not only that, but ground that who knows how many years it's been covered by water, which in theory should be muddy as all get out, is dry. And you proceed as a group of anywhere from one and a half to four million uh, uh, Israelites to cross through 
You get to the other side, Moses pulls out the staff, and the water drowns the entire army chasing you. And then three days later, you arrive at the mountain of God. Moses goes up to meet with God, and you go, what are we doing here? Moses left us. He's probably dead. God's going to kill us. We should, go, we should go back to slavery in Egypt. We should go throw ourselves back there. You know what? We know what we need to do. We need something we can look at. Let's make a cow of gold. Then, of course, Moses gets the Ten Commandments, comes down. We see the fallout from the calf of gold. We see then moving. We see that right after they move from there in chapter 16, they're out in the wilderness. Or this is before the golden calf. Out in the wilderness. God, you just brought us out. We don't have any food. You just brought us out here to die. It'd be better if we were rotten down in slavery. And God says, okay, I'm going to provide manna from heaven. And then, well, God, this is great. You brought us bread, but you're just going to bring us aside. We need protein. So I'm going to bring meat by the day. Well, God, you're not going to bring us any water. Oh, provide water. Again, in chapter 17, water from the rock. Get to Sinai, chapter 19, the Ten Commandments, chapter 20. And here's my point, or well, I'll come back to it here in a second. Exodus as a book, if you're trying to divide it, chapters 1 through 18 is the beginning of Moses to, to full freedom from Egyptian bondage. Then when you get to chapter 19, through the rest of the book, we find instruction for the, for the redeemed nation, instruction for the nation that has come out. So we see this is summarized in what you and I know as the Ten Commandments, or if you ever hear the term, the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments. Commandments 1 through 4 deal with a human's relationship to God. Commandments 5 through 10, a human's relationship with others. This is basically the summation and the um, least common denominator of what all the law boils down to. This is what, this is what God's people and what God is doing in, in, in beginning in, here in chapter 20 is God is formulating a covenant. So God made a covenant with Abraham, and you'll remember with Abraham, the way you ratify a covenant is you, uh, whoever's entering into the covenant, you take these sacrificial animals, cut them in half, and you walk in between the animals to signify what happened to those animals be done to you if you break the covenant. So it's why I always joke, it's more than a promise. It's more like when I was a kid and you made a pinky promise, and the, the threat was always, if you make a pinky promise and break it, then you get your pinky pulled off. That was kind of the idea on a much greater scale. When God makes a covenant with Abraham, Abraham in Genesis 15, and they do this ceremony, Abraham never walks through, only God. Because that covenant to make a great people from Abram's lineage, to give them a land, to make them a blessing to all nations, that covenant had nothing to do with Abraham's performance. There were no obligations upon uh, covenant obligations upon Abraham. That was God's covenant to Abraham. When we get to Sinai, the people that God has raised up from Abraham's, <clears throat> um, from Abraham's descendants, when they're now entering into a covenant, this is a different kind of covenant. Same co covenant, but it's different in the sense that God is entering into a covenant. I am going to be your God you're going to be my people. And being my people, knowing me, being in relationship with me, looks like this lived out between you and me and between yourselves and between yourselves and the outside world. 
And that's what's taking place here on Sinai. And so you start with the Ten Commandments. We see then we go to um, all these different laws. So as you work through, as you're reading through here, when you see these variety of laws and then the feasts and the Sabbath and the land and, and what's supposed to be here, this is all part of God helping establish not just a covenant of relationship, but helping establish a, a means for his people to live in a time when there is no written, there are no written Bibles, when at this point on the whole earth, they're the only people who know the one true God in terms of, in, in, a, in a right relationship with him. And they're going to have to carry out that relationship surrounded by a world of complete and total darkness. We see God establish the tabernacle and the things in the tabernacle. By the way, the things in the tabernacle all, uh, all point to aspects of God. The ark and the mercy seat represent his presence. The table of bread, his provision. The golden lampstand, his guidance. The veil separating the holy place from the holy of holies represented the divide between a holy God and sinful man. Remember that same veil when Jesus cried his last and breathed his last breath. What happened to that veil? Rendered from top to bottom, rendered from God's vantage point down to man. Because that veil no longer exists for those of us in Christ. The bronze altar showed that man could only come to God on the basis of his atoning work. The single doorway into the tabernacle represents there's only one way to approach God. That's why Jesus says, I am the way. The description of the priesthood, how certain elements were necessary before a person could approach God. The altar of incense helped people understand the importance of worship. The annual half-shekel tax showed that worship of God was obligatory, not voluntary. All of these, as you read through in, in these latter chapters of, of Exodus 20 about the tabernacle and what's there, all of these things are pointing to and are, are, used, are being used by God to do two things according to the New Testament. One, to ultimately help the, the people of Israel recognize they don't measure up. Now they know the law, but they don't measure up. The law exposes our sin, that we've fallen short. Two, to act as a guardian and a, a protection for the people of God to keep them from straying off into, and, and all of these things inside of the law are ultimately pointing to Jesus. And this is what's going on on the mountaintop. Of course, Moses is up there. We see this as you get to, to Moses 32, or Moses 32, Exodus 32, and the golden calf. Um, obviously you have the incredible moment when God's anger burns and Moses intercedes on behalf of the people. And, and you see the moment then in, in chapter 34 when, when God or Moses asks God, I want to show me your glory. And God says, no man may see my glory and live, but what I'll do is I'll hide you in the cleft of the rock. And when I pass by, I'll declare my glory before you. And this is, of course, the, the incredible revelation of further of God's character, the Lord Yahweh, Yahweh, God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth, who keeps loving kindness for thousands, who forgives iniquity, transgression, and sin, yet will by no means leave the guilty unpunished, visiting the iniquities of fathers on the children and on the grandchildren to the third and fourth generations. It's this incredible rea reality. You see the covenant renewed, and then some other aspects laid in as regard to the tabernacle as you finish out the book of Exodus, and the book Exodus ends with the tabernacle being, being uh, put together and, and, and stood up and everything now in place for God's people to begin to live out this covenant relationship with God. 
We see as we walk through the books of Exodus, we see God revealing himself personally. He sees their suffering. He hears their cries. He knows their pain. He sends a deliverer. We see God as a redeemer, deliverer, one who steps in on behalf of his people, who rescues them out of in slavery and bondage. We see a God who reveals himself not just, not just to his chosen leader, but a God who's revealing himself even to the nations. We see a God who has complete and total sovereign control over all creation to move events to the right places. We see a God who is not just any old God where anything goes, but a God who is specific, a God who is holy, and in his holiness who is gracious and compassionate and slow to anger, who's forgiving of sin, but, but also leaves no guilt unpunished. And we see him set up the sacrificial system and the law and bring his people into a two-way covenant relationship. You will be my people, I will be your God. We see all of this take place foundationally in the book of Exodus. And Exodus sets all of this up. So as we move from Exodus into uh, Numbers and Deuteronomy, we'll do that in a second. Now, Leviticus, let me just explain Leviticus. This is always the classic joke, right? I'm going to read my Bible book to book. I make it through Genesis. I make it through Exodus. I get to Leviticus, and then I die about th- a third of the way through. Uh, which if you're going to read it book by book, either just have discipline to push through it or maybe supplement your Leviticus with Psalms. Um, Leviticus specifically is how the law plays out for the priests, for the priestly tribe of Levi. And it's God applying the law to Levi or to to the priest and how that's going to come in. It's the explanation of the various forms of sacrifice. In it, the word blood appears 88 different times, reminding us of the weight of sin. Hebrews tells us in summarizing all of it, the book of Hebrews says there is no forgiveness of sin without the shedding of blood. There is a costliness to sin. The purpose of Leviticus was to teach Israel how to walk in practical holiness with God, which was necessary because God, remember God's raising up this people, not just to be a random people, but God is going to use them to be a light to the world, a blessing to all peoples. And that covenant with Abraham. Leviticus divides up into into two halves, chapters 1 through 10 and chapters 11 through 27. Chapters 1 through 10 look at the laws of sacrifice, the various kinds of sacrifices that were to be made, the burnt offering, the grain offering, the fellowship or peace offering. All three are voluntary and are intended to be offered by those in fellowship with God to please him. Sacrifices 4 and 5 were compulsory the sin offering, the guilt offering, these were mandatory and, and were, to be, uh, were to be offered. You see in uh, the laws of the priesthood play out in those first 10 chapters. Chapters 11 through 27, laws of sanctification. We find uh, the instruction for the day of atonement. We find laws of purity. We find the holiness code. We see the basis for the various feasts and festivals. And what I'm going to do here, because I want to touch on something before we close out our time tonight. I'm going to come back and do a little more in depth next week. I'll, I'll walk through a couple, what those sacrifices were, why they were, those festivals, because that's important for the rest. But for the sake of where we're going to go tonight, let me, so we'll, we'll dip back into Leviticus next week. But Leviticus is not necessarily more of the story if you're looking for narrative. What Leviticus is, is the unpacking and the implementation of these sacrifices. And Leviticus reveals the fact that God is a holy God who cannot intertwine with sin. And so if God's people are ultimately going to be in a completely restored relationship with God, like the garden where, where God walked with his people, there's going to have to be something take place to bridge the gap between sinful people and a holy God. And obviously that's foreshadowing 
Christ. But when you come to Numbers and Deuteronomy, here's Numbers and Deuteronomy. Numbers, when you come to the beginning of Numbers, it starts with a military census to organize Israel. Now think logically with me. You've got this group of 1.5 to 3 million people. You've come out. You've got to be prepared to go in and conquer and take a land. So there's got to be some organization and structure brought to camp. And so that's what starts in the book of Numbers, is we're going to bring some structure. And in Numbers, it divides into two halves. Chapters 1 through 25 looks at the first generation out of Egypt. That first generation, that generation that every time they come to any little inconvenient hiccup, oh my goodness, God, we should just go back to Egypt. You, you're going to brought us out here to die. And Moses, you're terrible. <clears throat> and never mind that they're terrible and could cause anyone to want to just absolutely obliterate them by all their complaining. But here's where it reaches a fever pitch. In chapter 11, you see the 12 spies, one spy from each tribe who go into the promised land, the land God's promised to give the people. They come back and they give their report. And that's when 10 of the spies give their report and they say, look, we went in there and absolutely, it is every, every, every bit as awesome as God said it would be. It's flowing with milk and honey. It's beautiful. The land is perfect for cultivating. There's tons of animals. Oh, but the people are huge and we're going to get squashed like bugs, so we can't go. Let's go back to Egypt. And then, of course, Joshua and Caleb stand up and Joshua and Caleb go, whoa, yes, the land is that good and God said he'd give it to us. We better march ourselves in there and do exactly what God said to do. That is the final straw in God's patience with that first generation. And that's the point where God says, here's the deal. Caleb and Joshua's families are spared because they've believed my word. But everybody else over the age of 20 has lost the privilege to enter into the promised land because you refuse to believe what I tell you. And so instead, you're gonna, we're going to keep you in the wilderness for 40 years and allow you to die off as the consequence for your sin. I'm not casting you off as my people. I'm still gonna lead you, still gonna provide for you, still gonna protect you, but you're not gonna get the privilege of the promised land. And so for 40 years, the people of Israel camp out in the wilderness. And I'll just give you this proviso. A lot of times we say that the people of Israel wandered in the wilderness. That's false. They never wandered. God kept them perpetually leading them in the wilderness. What may have felt like wandering to them was never wandering to God. God kept them in that wilderness. God led them in that wilderness. That wilderness, it was only an 11-day journey from Sinai into the promised land. If you're wandering, you're going to get out of there at some point before 40 years. And so we see, we see in the rest of those chapters, it, rebellion is incited. Then we see in chapter 20, the first day of the 40th year, uh, and we see as they're now moving towards the promised land, a new generation has risen up. This new generation is tempted into sexual immorality. And so God sends, God sends snakes with really painful bites. They're called fiery serpents. Snake bites, it hurts. That's why it's called fiery serpent. And people start dying as a response. And so that's when God says, or make the bronze serpent, put it up on the pole and tell the people when they get bit to look up and trust my word, faith my word as they look at that as they look at that snake. And of course, obviously that foreshadows because John said that Jesus must be raised up like the serpent in the wilderness. And Jesus raised up on that cross is the one to whom we look for life from death, 
for healing, for restoration, for salvation. When you get to Numbers chapter 26, it's now the second generation. They've organized themselves on the plains of Moab. They are being prepared for the conquest of the land. By the way, back in, in Numbers chapter 20, that's the point where the people are complaining and Moses just can't handle it. And instead of speaking to the rock, he strikes the rock and Moses in his life loses the privilege to lead the people into the promised land. Because he did not himself believe, uh, follow the word of God and loses that privilege. There's more that could be said there, but time doesn't allow. And so when you get to Numbers 26 through 36, you're seeing the people reorganizing this new generation, the oldest of whom would only be 60 years old. Everybody else would have been born. Uh, only the people from ages 40 to 60 would have had any memory of seeing God's deliverance from Egypt. That Most of them did not, would not have a, a memory of it having gone through it. They would have been, they, many of them would have been young. The majority of this new generation would have no memory being born after the fact. We see them prepare to go in. When you come to Deuteronomy then, so if number, numbers is a little bit of numbers of census with some aspects of story of the first generation, how they were faithless and the consequences of that faithless, then there's really not a lot said about the in-between 40 years. Then you come to the second half of the book in chapter uh, 26, and you see the second generation now being prepared, new generation. The first generation's died off, this new generation being prepared to go in, and that's what brings you up to the book of Deuteronomy. And the book of Deuteronomy essentially takes place, it's, 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 it takes place over a 70-day period between the beginning of the book's events and the crossing of the Jordan River. And what Deuteronomy is, is it's Moses' three final sermons to a new generation as they prepare to, to go in and conquest the promised land. And you find three different divisions, Deuteronomy 1 through 4, 5 through 26, 27 through 34. And the way some have, have, have categorized that, chapters 1 through 4 are a look of the past. Hey, new generation, let me help you remember what God has done in the past. See his faithfulness in the past. You need to know what God has done for you. Chapters 5 through 26, the present. Let's walk through uh, a record of Israel's laws, what it looks like, how you are to, to, to follow God, and, and how you apply his commandments to everyday life. And uh, you find, in, of course, in, in Deuteronomy chapter four, or sorry, chapter six, the ultimate summation of the law, um, when it said, "O Israel, chapter six, verse three, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you, in a land flowing with milk and honey. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might." And you shall, you shall teach these words diligently to your sons. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down. You shall bind them as a sign on your head. They shall be on your frontals, on your forehead. You shall write them on the doorpost. Ultimately, this is the, the, the Shema's is what it's, it's, it's called in Jewish circles. This is the summation. Jesus even says, boil down, Jesus, what's the greatest commandment? This is it, that you love the Lord your God with the entirety of your being. Because ultimately, even as Moses is reviewing the aspects of the covenant and the law, it doesn't come down to obey this rule and that rule. It comes down to, I am God, I made you, I created you, I love you, and I am calling you to be in a relationship that is completely and totally marked by me loving you and you loving me. Which means we don't follow the rules to check boxes. We ought to love the Lord, and that is why, therefore, we seek to honor and obey what he says. The summation is love 
We see in chapters 5 through 11, love the Lord God with all your being. Chapters 12 through 25, the the Ten Commandments applied to specific situations. Chapter 26, a call to remember the covenant. And then you get to chapters 27 through 34, the future. They're going to ratify the covenant again as a new generation. And, And then in the last three chapters, Moses is preparing them to enter in. And understand what that means for Israel. If you're one of that second generation, even if you're one of those that's, that was 20 or younger when, when, when things uh, went south in Kadesh Barnea and the first generation rebelled, all you have ever known is the leadership of Moses. And now Moses can't go with you into a land you've never seen, into a land your parents chickened out of going to take. And that's, of course, when Moses says, do not be afraid, be bold and courageous for the Lord your God goes with you, he goes, or he goes before you, and he goes with you. I may not go with you, but the Lord your God goes with you. And of course, you see then Joshua was picked, and that sets up the stage for Joshua. But this is what Deuteronomy is, and it's interesting in Deuteronomy. I'll just give you this one last note as, as we wrap here. Read just the first, I, I love, Deuteronomy is a wonderful book. I love Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is convicting, it's encouraging, and you will notice, especially in the first eight chapters, how many times God issues this command, remember, 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 remember. And he emphasizes if you, the the implication if you fail to remember who I am, who I've said I am, and what I've done, you will struggle to be courageous and follow me as you walk into the promised land. And the same thing goes for you and I, church family. It's, it's, it's do we remember? Do we remember the ways God has worked in our life and, and, and cling to who God has shown himself to be in the midst of present darkness? Do we remember? Do we share? One of the, here's one of the things too. The things that God commanded that generation to remember were a lot of them things that generation never lived through. They were things that their ability to remember depended upon the older generation's faithfulness to speak of God's faithfulness in their daily lives to the younger generation. It's why in our churches today, we have got to find a way to correct the problem of the old and young never being together. Because if you are older in your walk with God, then maybe you're old in age, maybe you're not old in age, but if you are older in your walk with God, you have a responsibility to share the stories of how God has proven himself to be exactly who he said he's been to the younger generation. That's one of the key aspects of passing on the faith. Not only that, but it talks, fam- uh, parents, families, it talks about this, this command to love the Lord God with all your being, it should be something that is so commonplace that it comes up in everyday mundane life. Yet in most of our homes, spiritual conversation is abnormal, not normal. And I don't think there's a magic way to make it normal other than you just gotta talk, you, you've gotta have a real relationship where you're seeking and loving Jesus and you talk about it to your kids and your grandkids. And I praise the Lord that for whatever reason, God was gracious enough to put me in a home where it was more common at the dinner table to talk about stuff we saw God doing than it was about what happened in Major League Baseball that day. And listen, I love baseball. I already texted my dad earlier today and said, I think A&M's gonna lose today. And then I texted him when they did lose. I love baseball. We can talk about baseball. I love a lot of other stuff we can talk about. But talking about who God is 
And the real genuine love for him has to become commonplace that we talk about it on our rising and our, and our going down and our walking and our coming and our driving and our lingering at our dinner tables. And so I, I love the book of Deuteronomy because it is, especially when you understand the context of who Moses is preaching to and what he is preparing them to go do because all of us face change at some point. All of us are moving from where we've been to where God is taking us. All of us face moments where the leadership we once had, there's changes, and it's not, we're uncertain, but it's the Lord who goes with us. It's the Lord who goes before us. Man, there's just, goodness. We're going to go way over time, and I'll end up preaching all sorts of maybe stuff. But when you get to Deuteronomy, here's what you've got. The end of Deuteronomy, the people of Israel are now prepared. Moses passes away. Joshua is the leader. And we prepare to pick up in Joshua chapter 1, where the people of Israel are going to cross the Jordan to begin to finally take the land that God covenanted to their father Abraham that he would give them. And that's where we'll pick up next week, uh, as well as with a little bit of Leviticus, just to be a little clearer on the sacrifices and the festivals. So appreciate you being here. I have a request before I pray us out that whenever you're done lingering at your table and talking, if you would take your basket of snacks and set them on one of those tables right back there, that would be a huge help for us um, because our team that normally does that is out, with, uh, is out tonight. And so that would be a huge help. Um, to us. And um, my daughter isn't here with all her energy to do it for you. And even if she was, I don't think she could because she just, she'd be climbing these stairs, not caring about any of that. So uh, appreciate your prayers for us. We're hanging in there and, and slowly getting back to, uh, to normal and health and um, excited for Sunday. We are going, uh, I think Daniel said, we're going to start calling me Pastor Obscure because uh, we're going to take three weeks and we're going to walk through the wonderful little prophetic book of Habakkuk. So Get excited. Maybe look up Habakkuk if you've never, ever read it or seen it. It's in there, I promise. It's only three chapters, though, so it's easy to flip past. That's where we're going to pick up Sunday. So let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your story. Thank you. When we look out tonight, we see, um, God, we see your personalness. We see your faithfulness. God, we see the fact that you work your plan out over many years. God, we see that your people sometimes go through hardship. Your people sometimes feel stuck in wilderness. Your people sometimes are on the verge of walking into a promised land you've prepared them for. And in all of those places, you love them. You're God. You're faithful to them. You go before them. You go with them. Lord, thank you that you're faithful in our lives. God, you're faithful to love us. You're faithful to protect us. You're faithful to provide for us. You're faithful to discipline us. And so, Lord, I do pray that we would not, as a church family, God, that we would not be like that first generation out of Israel, who it did not matter, or out of Egypt, it didn't matter what they saw you do, they always questioned who you are. They refused to remember and believe. But, Lord, when you come to that second generation, who came of age in the wilderness, they didn't see your flashy miracles, but they saw your daily provision. They heard those words of Moses, prepare them to take. They followed the leadership of Joshua. They crossed into the Jordan. And, and Lord, when you get to the end of the book of Joshua and the beginning of Judges, it says that generation served you with their whole hearts. That generation took you at your word. God, may we be like that generation who takes you at your word. 
God, I do ask, just as Moses asked, Lord, that as a church family, Lord, you would breathe breath and revive our hearts and you would show us your glory. God, and that like Moses, we would come off the mountain and we would shine reflection of your glory to all who see. It's in your name we pray, Jesus. Amen.